1: Before they Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation journeying through the Disney animated canon in chronological order. Doing our best to play a part in a healthy ecosystem between art, and criticism, and fandom as we talk about these worlds full of magic. Hopefully along the way we enrich the viewing experience and have some fun too. Today we're going on the longest, hardest, most exhausting journey I've ever been on with the biggest pain in the neck, 2003's Brother Bear. But what would you expect from a movie in the near miss era of Disney? Brother Bear is the 44th movie in the canon, and it's kind of about a man and kind of about a bear, but mostly it's about a monster. Joining me as always to talk about it is a raging ball of brown fur, Michael Farmer. How's it going, Josh? (laughs) It's, it's, we're, we're going here. This movie, uh, is weird. (laughs) Yep. Uh, That is, that is true that's my descriptor for it like i just i don't i don't quite know how to how to feel about it um but yeah i so i'll i'll talk real quick about my experience with it and then you you can share yours i didn't know anything about this movie going in like i was um i think last month on our show uh sarai is the one who informed me that phil collins did the soundtrack i didn't know that um i thought it was going to be computer animated so i was really surprised uh when it was you know, mostly hand-drawn. Um, like I didn't, I, I knew zero, you know? Um, so I'm watching it actually the first, as I was watching it, when it changed from, um, you know, it changes, um, screen aspect about 20, 24, 25 minutes in. Yeah, it does. Uh, doesn't it? Yeah. And I thought that's when it was going to go to CG. Cause I would just con- had this con- convincing thought in my mind that we were done with hand-drawn animation. Um, And so I thought, oh, now it's all going to be in CG, and then it wasn't. So I I just I had the I had that all wrong because I think we've been saying since like uh, Tarzan, we were like, oh, this is going to be the peak of hand drawn animation. Um, Like I knew Lilo and Stitch and Emperor's New Groove existed, but like they're obviously a little bit different style, you know?
0: Right, right. They're not they're not that that grand art arty style that we got accustomed to. They're closer to the well i mean in in some ways so you have that peak at sleeping beauty right and then you have a series of cheaper and i don't i don't mean that necessarily as a quality uh judgment but you have a a series of cheaper animations in the 60s and 70s and then Mm -hmm. eventually you get back to even more grandiose and lilo and stitch kind of belongs to that cheaper era or maybe dumbo is a better example i think i compared lilo and stitch to dumbo in a lot of ways but Right. D- the animation in Dumbo is much less extravagant than the three movies that came before it. Right?
1: right. Yeah, it said extravagance. And so I keep thinking we're done with the extravagance, and then we just keep getting it, which is, is kind of fun in its way. Um, it's the uh, it's the the rewriting of the Disney history that I, I held in my head. My, the incorrect history that I held in my head, and the, it's getting rewritten. Uh, well, I knew project. that Home
0: on the Range was the last 2D they produced until Princess and the Frog
1: yeah but it's really not that big a gap like i thought like the, the i think that was part of the thing in the in my head of of oh this is this huge gap but like it's really not that many years between home on the range and um and princess yeah. and the frog you know well, what i mean
0: on the, but on the other hand the, the yeah the distance between princess and the frog and now is twice as long as the distance between home on the range and princess and the frog it's just that when Home on the Range flopped, they said, we're closing down our 2D studio, so everybody assumed there would never be another one. And they didn't say that after Princess and the Frog. or th- There's a Winnie the Pooh movie that comes out in 2011, I think, that's that's actually the, the most recent 2D. They haven't said yeah. that yet. We're not making any more 2D animation, and so I guess people don't feel like that's the last one, like they did with Home on the Range.
1: Right. <clears throat> yeah. So anyway, that's, that's my... That's my experience with this movie. So when I watched it last week for the first time, it was it was really the first time I really went in basically blind. And I'm not only blind, but misinformed in my own like understanding of the movie <laughs> and how it fit in the so, canon. <laughs> so
0: I had seen this before. Um, I had cable when I was in graduate school, and I would come home from teaching at about 3 o'clock. And the Disney Channel would often be showing... A movie and i would turn it on while i made dinner and like read i would read during the commercials and, and stuff like that and so I, I saw it in that context which is to say i wasn't paying super close attention and i saw it interrupted by uh by commercials every 15 minutes so i i had seen this movie before and i remembered some things about it but i didn't remember everything about it and um yeah. I mean I didn't really like it then and I didn't really like it this time, but I probably liked it a little more this time than then.
1: Yeah. It's not a it's not a horrible, horrible movie. No, it I is, wouldn't call it horrible. It's um I mean I use the term weird. It's just it's it's that near miss thing again, you know? It's like it's not quite there. Like there's there, and I I was trying to really put my finger on it the second time through. And maybe you can help me find where to place my finger. But like I'm just like I the, I'm not quite sure why this movie is not grabbing me, but it just isn't, you know? Like it's fine. <laughs> but but you know, you don't want your movies to be fine. You want them to, to grab you and move you and, and all that stuff and it just
0: is just it's just kind of meh. <laughs> I, I, I think part of the problem one. Part of the problem is it is composed of the butt ends of a number of other movies, right? So it owes an awful lot to Pocahontas, and it owes an awful lot to, of all things, Dinosaur. Um, and it so it suffers. It's better than Dinosaur, but it definitely suffers in comparison to Pocahontas, which is already not a top-tier Disney movie, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of the problem. Another part is that the first 20 minutes promised something that the rest of the movie doesn't deliver. And you have a, a really big mood shift when the ratio shifts and you move from having a kind of serious movie to having a cutesy cartoon with cute characters. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I, we've talked about this before. We talked about this with uh, hunchback of Notre Dame. It it's, it's something I understand why they felt like they had to do it, but they sacrificed some of the quality of the movie by deciding they have to make something that they can slap on a happy meal. Right. Um, and, and I mean, the real symptom of that, uh, is the, the moose who are, uh, are just, are just the characters from SCTV, right? The Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas characters from SCTV. Yeah. (laughs) And, and they dominate the center part of this movie. And it's uh, like, it, it clashes so terribly with the very serious grave, first 20 minutes that like every time they came on the screen my wife said there is a thousand times too much moose in this movie <laughs> right like they should have had a role roughly akin to those sheep the 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 bighorn sheep that have mm-hmm. you know with the new york accents who were in the movie for like 3 minutes that that scene yep. that seemed was very funny but if they had been throughout the movie i would have been annoyed at that too and i feel that way about the the bob and Doug moose what are their yeah. What are their names? In them? Rut, Rut, and Took? Rut and Took, yeah, yeah. But it's Bob and Doug, yeah, totally Bob and Doug. Which
1: I so Bob and Doug have their own movie called Strange Brew, which was a favorite in in college. We watched it a lot, and so I have a real affinity for those guys. But I I agree that in this movie, uh, the the comparison that came to my mind was um, Fox and the Hound. Yes. The Fox and the Hound, you have the same thing where you have this very kind of serious tale happening on the one hand. And then you keep having it l- lightened up, quote unquote, lightened up with this side story of I forget who it was in that movie, Booster. And <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, whatever. yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the two birds the, who were who like right out of a right out of a Looney Tunes cartoon.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I think we said at the time, like if it was their movie. You know, like if it was if it was those two birds like that could be OK mm-hmm. um, if we had a if we had a rut and Took, you know, moose movie, maybe that would have been fine. I don't know. But like it's the I think you're right. It's the clash that doesn't quite uh, hold together. And, and it and it's unfortunate and, because and, and, they are they are funny.
0: But it just, it
1: doesn't, it doesn't work.
0: It's a symptom of a greater problem in the movie, which is this movie doesn't trust its audience. And you you see that in in the fact that it won't let it be dark enough. You see it in the fact that everything that should be a metaphor is super literalized, right? So he's supposed to learn to live in his totem. And, oh, look, he actually becomes his totem. And there's that Mm -hmm. scene... Um, there's that scene at the end where he's looking at the totem, and then the camera pans over to Coda. and it's like, yeah, we get it. Like even a <laughs> child would get it. And if he didn't get it, three years later he'd rewatch the movie and get it and feel super smart for getting it. Like the movie doesn't trust us. And the, the other symptom, the other symptom of that is, in the big emotional moment, we, this could have been the highlight of the film when um, Kanai has to tell Coda that he killed his mother, right? Like mm. th- this, this could have been amazing, and instead, the world's worst Phil Collins song is playing <laughs> over the top of it, because they don't trust you to be able to pick up on the emotion, and so they have to hammer it home with music. Yeah. I, I, I think that's this movie's big problem. It's not even the, the, the mood shift itself, it's the fact that the movie thinks you're not smart enough to understand the, the kind of emotional subtext of the movie. So they have yeah. to make it text.
1: I like that. I like that criticism because I think it's, I think it's accurate. And I think it also, um, I like get just explains exactly how I was feeling in this movie. It's a, it's a, it's a manipulation almost of emotions rather than like, it's like a, we have to make sure that our movie feels this way. Um, and so we're going to try and manipulate it that way through music and through whatever, t- t- turning subtext into text. And it actually that, that formula doesn't work.
0: <laughs> no, it it really doesn't. And
1: and but I, they seem to think it will, right? Like I mean, the movie makers must think it will. And maybe they don't trust themselves. Like maybe it's uh maybe it's not less a trust of the audience, and it's uh uh some sort of um. You know subconscious like not trusting their own story that they came up with or not trusting their own ability to to tell a story that's that's going to move people and so they they try and pack it full of the the things that they think will work
0: yeah so, but i mean compared to something like bambi right like the bambi has this this amazing trust in the audience that the audience who's you know at that point they wouldn't have counted on it being mostly children but certainly children are involved to, mm-hmm. to pick up on that that amazing moment in Bambi where Bambi is running and all of a sudden he hears the shot and the the movie just stops. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie could have done something like that with him telling Coda, but instead Phil Collins has to come on and tell us that there's no way for uh, there's no way for Kanai to get out of the problem he's made for himself. Yeah, yeah, we get it. I, I mean, that, I, I called that the world's worst Phil Collins song. It's actually not even the worst Phil Collins song in this movie but it is the most <laughs> intrusive and annoying Phil Collins song just because of the way they 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 put it and, uh, d- remind me Josh we liked the Phil Collins soundtrack to Tarzan right I think so yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not I, a, I'm I, not the I, world's I, biggest Phil Collins fan but I don't I don't reflexively hate him
1: right yeah I I'll, I'll tell you like uh, to say something positive about Phil Collins like you know he's his drumming stuff is really cool and yeah, there's yeah. a lot of cool drum moments in this movie as well as in tarzan and maybe like,
0: that's why they picked and, him maybe they wanted somebody who could do that that kind of um percussion everybody yeah. everybody forgets of course that phil collins was the drummer for genesis and, and a great drummer yeah. he wasn't even supposed to be the singer yeah yeah
1: totally yeah he comes he comes from that background and, and he and and i think because he comes from that background he foregrounds it in his music which is is exactly what a drummer would do so right, I, right. I mean i'm 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 on his wavelength on that on that part, but his
0: lyrics are mush. <laughs> right, right, and and and,
1: and again, there's just no, there's no there there on the lyrics. They're,
0: they're just kind of inferior copies of the much better lyrics from uh, the Lion King, right? The 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 opening song in this movie is the Circle of Life. It's got the same melody. The the, the verses on I, I uh, forgive me, I can't even remember the name of the song, but the 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 verses on it have the exact same melody as the Circle of Life. Or you know, similar enough that I was surprised Close Elton enough. John didn't yeah. sue. Yeah, it's, maybe so. that was part of Disney's
1: uh, contract. So yeah. You can't sue us for using yeah, can, your melody.
0: We can rip it off if we want to. I, I I found I found the music distracting in a way that the music is not supposed to be distracting. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: the music is supposed to 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 move the movie in.
0: Look through <laughs> yeah. my eyes. That's the name of the. That's the name of
1: the annoying
0: song. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's the name of one of the annoying songs, (laughs) since all of the (laughs) songs are annoying.
1: Hey, before we get too far from it, I want to come right back to the songs. But I do want to mention, because you mentioned Bambi, and I actually, uh, I think they were trying to reference Bambi in a way, Uh because after Coda learns that his mother's dead he runs off and he runs through the woods and it's snowing, which is a very similar moment to like what happens in Bambi, that's right? That's Yeah, that's, a good, that's a good catch. Through the snow. So, yeah, I just, I wanted to mention that they seem to be referencing it. Although, yeah, Bambi, I think, is probably my number one of, of all the Disney animated films. You know, like I, uh-huh. I love that movie and it is it is. This movie is so far from that. I think it's a, it's an interesting juxtaposition um, that you just made with the, uh, you know, comparing how the film trusts its audience and trusts its story between Bambi and this one. But B- Bambi is yes, just the
0: gold standard for not talking down to children. Right. right I mean and and that that's the problem with a lot of contemporary animation is it assumes kids what they what they really want is fart jokes because they can't handle any kind of emotional nuance, and I just don't think that's true i mean the 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 decades-long popularity of some of those older movies shows that kids, you know they they're not adults, but they they have they have a nose for emotional nuance that you're not doing yourself any favors by ignoring. And and to be fair, the, the best of the Renaissance films do that too, right? I mean, the, the Lion King does that, I think, very very well. Um, the the death of Mufasa is like like when you're a kid and you watched. I was twelve, so I was a little older than you know. I'm I'm thinking of an eight year old, but when you when I when I watched that movie as a kid, like I recognized the the mixed emotions that Simba had. He had wanted to be king, and now he was or should have been, but also that he loved his father and he was mad at himself for uh leading to his death as he thought like he, he's he, he's he feels all these different things at once and the the movie doesn't bother to spell it all out for you and so you can um so you can do that kind of intellectual emotional labor if you want to use that word for yourself this movie doesn't let you do that instead it tells you how to feel and and it, so that, that's why I say it talks down to children,
1: right? And, but there's a terrible irony in that, like, of it's talking down to children because I feel like thematically, this movie actually elevates children. Like it's Coda that is able to bring Kanai to the point that he needs to be in order to become a man or whatever, you know, like whatever the movie calls it. He doesn't really, you know what I mean? Like, like his Kanai's journey doesn't happen without coda absolutely and with without coda's uh patience understanding i mean i mean coda is definitely leaning on him like i don't want to make it seem like it's a completely one-way relationship here but like it's like coda is definitely the better of the two (laughs) in the relationship right like he's he's the one who's instilling some sort of virtue into kanai right and then uh, by the end like it's his Uh, His willingness to forgive Kanai and then also to potentially sacrifice himself like he has to face his biggest fear of, you know, the monster, the hunter uh, and attack um, Denali in order to save Kanai.
0: It's funny. It's funny that you also call him Denali, which um, which is the mountain. Oh, uh, that used to oh, be called sorry. I, I called him <laughs> that throughout the movie. His name is Denahi.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, you're you're right. And I even have it written down here the correct way, but yeah. Uh, what,
0: what I liked about what, that and, and this is this is maybe the best thing I'll say about this movie, um, which is that I think its vision of transitioning to adulthood is a really important one and, and maybe not what you would have expected. So when we did Lilo and Stitch, Stephen D. uh Gradanis talked about the Junior knows best plot. Mm-hmm. And this isn't that because it's not that Coda is wise; it's that he needs someone, and and so Kanai becomes a man. He becomes an adult by recognizing that he has an obligation to this child, um, which that's a, that's a fairly complex um, that's a that's a fairly complex vision of maturity, don't you think?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. That's and yeah, I think that. That is the key. Is is that um. That that need for one another, you know, like the need, the Coda's recognition that he needs someone, and then Kanai's recognition that actually needing to be needed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Is is a crucial part of of yeah of maturity. Needing to be needed, I think, is a, 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 a crucial part.
0: So I did like that um, and I, I liked that he when when the shaman gives him his totem and tells him that the guiding virtue of his life is going to be love and he he acts like that's not masculine enough. I, I really appreciated that journey and that that uh-huh. seems that seems like an important um, an important message to send out into the world. but again that's that's another example of the first 20, 25 minutes of this movie promising something that the rest of the movie doesn't deliver because it becomes a cute cartoon.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. The first 20, 25 minutes of this movie are really, are really good. I think (laughs) maybe not really good, but in comparison with the rest of the movie, like, I like how you're saying it. like the they're, they're, they're promising something like there, there is definitely a promise in those first 20, 25 minutes of the movie that is lost in the in the second act or this, the second two thirds.
0: So, I mean, the best thing I'll say about this movie, since we've been dumping on it for a while, the, the best thing I'll say is that this has to be the peak of 2d background animation. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the backgrounds in this movie are just amazing. The snow in particular, the snow, like sitting on the trees and stuff looks like real snow. And maybe it was done 3D, and that's why it looks so good. But uh, like the the background animation is just, or it's not even really animation, is it? It's 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 still is just unbelievably good. Um, and and you like this is something we've been talking about since the very first episode. Because one of the big innovations of Snow White is that multiplane camera. So they can they can do these. Really elaborate artistic backgrounds. Well, I think this is the fulfillment of the promise we got at the very beginning of the Disney canon. Unfortunately, the backgrounds are so beautiful that it makes the character animation and the character designs look very out of place because they look so much more cartoonish than the world they're in. And mm. Snow, that's something Snow White understood, right? And Snow White and herself, and even even the dwarfs and even the animals don't look super cartoonish the way these do. Mm -hmm. yeah there's
1: yeah you're right there's a there's another disconnect there between you know uh what's going on in the background and what's going on in the foreground but you're also correct that the i mean the backgrounds are stunning they they really did do an amazingly beautiful job on them all those uh all those scenic alaska views
0: (laughs) right right yeah um or North
1: North uh, Canada or whatever it is Wherever supposed it is, to be yeah. Yeah. up north,
0: yeah, way up there. The other the other thing the other one that where the lights just, touch the mountain. <laughs> but, but, you know, I lived in Minnesota for eight years and I never did see the the Northern Lights. It's a it's a bummer, but um, the the other thing the other one I remember is there's a there's one with a waterfall, um, and you you know. Um, in Snow White, the backgrounds don't move. Well, this waterfall not just doesn't just move; it looks real. And and you know, my understanding is that water is something that's very difficult to animate and have it look good. And so, I, I really do think, in some ways, not in in the foreground, but I think we have reached the pinnacle of two D animation in terms of how good the backgrounds of this movie look. All right.
1: Yeah and and I agree with you that there is a disconnect between the background and the foreground but i I don't think the foreground is like bad no, it's you know not like awful. it's it just it doesn't it doesn't quite match is the problem the problem is it doesn't quite match but like if uh if the if there was more of a match, I think you know we would we would be saying that the because the the foregrounds. Like the, I think the character animation itself is good. You know, like maybe it's more of a, um, what, a a design problem that we're, that we're facing. Yeah, I think that's
0: right. It's not that they're animated poorly, it's that they're designed poorly. Yeah,
1: that's, I think that's what I was trying to say. You always do such a good job of, um, saying what I'm trying to say. (laughs) You have the insight, I just know how to express it. (laughs) (laughs) That is not true, but, um yeah that's good so yeah so anyway i sidetracked this from the phil collins music i wanted to go back to it for a minute because i actually do like um on my way yep that, what, that, that one's that one's not bad yep that was that was the one song uh in here that i that i enjoyed and i enjoyed the way they did it, you know, like the way, like it's funny, the way Koda starts singing it and, uh, is trying to stop him and, uh, Koda's doing another, uh, you know, reference back to, to one of my favorite Disney movies. He's kind of doing the, the jungle book, uh, walk uh-huh. that the, the little elephant does when, when he's singing. Um, and, and, uh, Koda starts doing that and, uh, with the legs kicked, kicked way out, you know? um, and so, yeah, that one, that one I liked, that one I enjoyed.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. That's the that's the closest thing to a good song in this movie, anyway. I don't know <laughs> yeah. that that's going to be one that I buy and listen to, but it, it's 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 certainly better than the other songs.
1: Yeah. Well, one thing I will say that um, as long as we're talking about you know some of the performers is uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Is that his name? Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah. He is awesome as far as like how excited he
0: was to be in this movie. <laughs> it's weird to think about Joaquin Phoenix watching a cartoon, much less being super excited about being in one, because it's so different was... from his public persona now.
1: It, it's true, but like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's fun when actors and actresses and, you know, performers of of all kinds, music and everybody's like, I get to be in a Disney movie. This is so cool. I feel kinda of bad for him that it turned out to be Brother Bear, you know? But, yeah,
0: right, right. And you know, <laughs> he's a great actor now. I think he was still coming into his talent when this came out. I, he's he's not bad in this movie, but I wouldn't say he's great in it. Yeah. There's a lot
1: to um I think it's hard well, I don't know. I don't know what's hard and what's easy in acting because I'm not an actor. Yeah. Uh, I feel like a character like Kanai must be difficult because you can't make them so unappealing that the audience isn't rooting for them. Right. But they're really not appealing. Right. Like yeah. Where Kanai starts in this movie, like, yeah.
0: yeah I guess Just, he should just have imagine to being him. such a douchebag that your ancestors turn you into a bear. <laughs> like that's the plot of this movie right like kanai is such a douchebag that he has to become an animal <laughs> and you're right so if you compare him like this was one of our problems with treasure planet much to sarai's uh dismay is that the the main character whose name i've already forgotten um jim jim he he's he's he so unappealing that he can't really serve as the center of the movie and can Joaquin Phoenix's Can I does give him some feeling that makes him not as unappealing as he could be. So you're right. I, th- I think you're. I think I think you're right. I think that the. Um, I think that the the performance is much better than than it initially appears. Just for that reason. Also, you know, I'm sure Joaquin Phoenix thought about this. The plot involves him losing his older brother, which happened to Joaquin Phoenix because River Phoenix died of a drug overdose when mm-hmm. um, Joaquin Phoenix was just a kid. Right. I guess when also River Phoenix was just a kid. So, like, I, I, I wonder I wonder what it was like to, to play this part for him. It must have been kind of cathartic. Yeah. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Maybe River Phoenix's spirit has turned Joaquin Phoenix into the off-putting <laughs> weirdo that he is now.
1: It's <laughs> <laughs> all going to turn out, okay.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe he's just trying to teach him how to learn how to how to empathize with uh with weirdos. Maybe.
1: <laughs> I think that word empathy is good because it feels like this movie so I really I want to like the theme of this movie of like I feel like there's a there's a there's a bigger picture here of like the transformative power of love. And again the 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 subtext becomes text because he literally transforms, right? And then he has to literally transform back into a bear at the end in order to show his love. But like I I feel so I feel like this transformative power of love I'm there for. But then I feel like in this movie their idea of love is not a particularly christian version of love. It's just kind of more an empathy, you know? Like we we are all connected and we should understand that you know, uh, yeah, all animals experience life in, yeah, or something, you know what I mean? Like, does, do you have anything anything wise to say about that?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, at least it's better than some of the versions of love, which are, are completely reduced to the erotic, right? That is true. So I, I feel like the, the vision of love it has is a response to human need or, or I guess a ursine need. And, um and I I think that's that's not so bad um, you know I I I'm, I'm hesitant when anything in pop culture uses the word love I I, I always want them to write a 10 page essay on what exactly that term means because it's so freighted but I, I I think the the one here is at least one you don't see as often which is this this obligation um or, or as I said response to need I, I empathy is true too but I, I really I really feel like the uh, him loving him is not feeling for him as he does at the end of the movie. It's, it's when he turns back into the bear because Coda needs him. I, I think mm-hmm. I think that is kind of a Christian um, vision of love, or at least one that's compatible with Christianity.
1: Right, I would agree with that. I think what threw me off actually is less. So you're right. I, I need to, to focus on the movie itself, because in the movie itself, you, you are you are correct. That is a more Christian version of love, um, other than when she first when she, when he's first introduced to the fact that he's getting this love totem. The the shaman woman says a love that connects and unites all living things is like the way she describes it. And I feel like that is kind of the um, the press For this movie, you know, so I watched just a a snippet of a making of I I ran out of time to watch the whole thing. But in the beginning of it, you know, you have all the different characters and performers and singers and and writers and Roy Disney and everybody in there, you know, talking about like how powerful this movie is going to be and and how it's about love. And in there they're talking about the more, I don't know, like swarmy like yeah, we need a 10 page essay on what you guys are all talking about here because it doesn't seem to be the, the love that the movie actually professes of that. Like I'm, yeah, I, I'm responding to your need. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah. Think, and, and again, that, that other vision is just kind of the circle of life reheated in a microwave.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, it seems like what they thought they were making, maybe.
0: Well, I, I, I read that the movie was commissioned by our buddy Michael Eisner, um, who, you know, is still welcome to come on the show if he, if he, I, I know he listens, but he might be shy about, it. anyway, I, he it was commissioned after the Lion King made a buttload of money. He said, well, we need more, we need more movies about animals. <laughs> right. Which you know, like, there's nothing wrong with a, a animated movie about animals, but I, I, again, I just I feel like the the suits always learn the wrong lesson from everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What's the
1: lesson of the Lion King?
0: Is animals? Yeah, instead of instead of make good movies. <laughs> Well, Eisner won't be in charge much longer, and and you know the, the last the last few movies have been such enormous flops. The, the last few big budget movies have been such enormous flops that uh, they are going to shut down two D animation, which is a you know that's a that's a pretty big step. Uh, the the company that essentially invented two D feature animation is not making any more of them, and in particular, I think this was the last movie they made at disney mgm studios in florida which is also a theme park so you used to be able to go i remember doing this when i was a kid and i think they were making pocahontas when i saw them um and i don't know what this was like for the animators because it, it, when i'm going to describe it you're going to say oh my gosh what a, what a, what a horrible workplace but you, you <laughs> could you could go in the building where the animators are actually working on the movie and you would go on a like bridge a glassed-in bridge over the studio and look down and see this is my memory and see people drawing <laughs> the movie which yeah. is an awesome experience for tourists right but i can't imagine yes. what it would have been like like you couldn't pick your nose all day at work you know you yeah. certainly aren't going to goof off you're like in the zoo i i, I could be misremembering this because i was a kid when I, I was probably 10 9 or 10 years old when i saw this so that was you know a third of my life ago for a quarter of my life ago goodness gracious or uh, three quarters of my life ago, but um, but I that that's my memory of this. So um, I, th- that, this was the last movie they made in that studio, and now I think they've shut down all the. They used to have a kind of animation program. You could go to it, what's now called Disney Hollywood Studios, and you would they would teach you how to draw characters, and you'd go go to this exhibit where you would sing um you would sing the bare necessities and try to s- sync up your mouth with the with the characters, and you, you would learn, which is of course not how they make uh, animation. Um, but you, you would kind of <laughs> learn the process of animation. I think they've torn that down to do Star Wars stuff or maybe Pixar stuff, which is a shame because um, that, that was there even 10 years ago. Uh, yeah. But, but it, it does feel like um, the, the various failures of the 21st century caused them to turn their back on on what made them great to begin with because yeah b- because the message they got from the failure of brother bear was we shouldn't make any more 2d movies
1: yeah and i think we talked about this during uh treasure planet that that decision actually came during the production of treasure planet yes. and not specifically because of treasure planet but yeah at this point i mean how demoralizing in a way you know to understand that you're you know you're you're turning off the lights at the end of of this movie you know I guess, I guess you could work that both, like, two ways. Like, in one way, you could be like, this this is it. We have to make the best movie ever. But in another way, it would be like, it doesn't matter, <laughs> you know? Like, right. Whatever we do, it doesn't matter. Like, this is the end, you know? They're turning off the lights on the studio when we're done. We weren't. We aren't going to have jobs anymore.
0: You right. know? Yeah. But on the other hand, at least somebody's not going to watch you at work all day.
1: Yeah, that's true. I wonder, that's really interesting. I wonder if uh, that being seen all the time actually did affect the quality of the movies coming out of the Florida animation
0: studio. I also rather suspect, Josh, and I don't know, again, I'm not a 100% sure that's how it worked, but that is what I remember. I, I if, if that is indeed how it works, I wonder if they might have cycled animators in and out of that room. You know what I mean? Uh, like like uh, most of uh, the time they weren't actually working in there. Right. That's what I would do if I were running that exhibit because – I, I just think it would be horribly distracting to have a bunch of tourists gawking at you while you did your job. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be kind of like teaching. Yeah. <laughs> it's a
1: cool concept, though. It really on is. The, I'm, yeah. I'm a teaching... I mean, because you're really... Insp- so this is one of the things that I like about watching the behind-the-scenes features and stuff like that, and just being kind of an animation nerd in in general, is it really humanizes the whole process. You know, it's like, there's a, there are people who are working on this and are making this, you know, like when you, when you watch the movie, because it's all hand drawn and cartooned and, or CG or whatever it is, you know, um, mostly CG these days, like you can almost forget the, the human element behind it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, but then like seeing, seeing the actual people and like seeing, like there's a real craft to it and then i i think there's a there's something inspiring about that and also potentially inspiring for people who want to pursue that as a as a a career you know like oh this is something you can do you can you can draw for your whole life you know um the the, the exhibit
0: they had (laughs) where you could go in and they would teach you to draw the characters was just so much fun um for someone like me who has very little uh, artistic talent to, to come up with something. I remember when we went, we did Scrooge McDuck, and it, you know, it wasn't a professional quality Scrooge McDuck, but it looked good enough, and and like, that was neat. It was neat to think about, oh, you know, these movies come from nothing, mm-hmm. and, and, and they create these characters that look so lifelike, and, you know, it takes billions of Pages uh, over, you know, with 150 people drawing for five years or whatever. So yeah, I I think that was a really cool program, Um, and I I wish. I mean, I I don't know how to do it with CGI because it'd just be a guy looking at a computer. Yeah. Um, So I I guess they couldn't do it anymore anyway. But gosh, that was a that was a cool that was a cool thing. Well,
1: speaking of humans making art, there there is that moment in the movie too where the The, uh, you know, the the cave art. I guess it's not really cave art. Wall art, you know, is kind of highlighted in this movie a couple different times, um, which is kind of a just an amazing. I mean, the, in the movie, it's it serves its its purpose, but I just mean like in general, like that we have art from humans dating back, you know tens of thousands of years or 10,000 years or whatever, you know, however old the oldest cave paintings that they found is
0: now right in Lascaux. Have you have you ever looked at the Lascaux paintings?
1: Uh not not with any sort of rigor, no. They're beautiful,
0: and they're not just beautiful. They're not simplistic. Like there's there's layers of colors and like they're they're really amazing. Um and and the the thing you see in the movie where it's hands that's a mm-hmm. that's a real thing in the Lascaux paintings. So you, you, you actually have the handprints from these people who lived tens of thousands of years ago. It's, yeah. it's really cool. And I, I thought they they reproduced that very well in this movie.
1: Yeah. It's really cool and it's like so um you know, I just I read recently, I read um uh the Anthropocene Reviewed uh-huh. by uh, John Green. It's, it's, his, it's his new book of essays that just came out, um, and he talks about the. Uh, pronounce that word for me again, because I'm going to pronounce it wrong. Lasco. Yeah, the Lasco paintings, um, and he he talks about in there. You know, there's this connection because a hand a handprint is so, like we've all made them. Right, you know? right. We, we make them it's the first thing that
0: occurs making... to you when you're a kid. Right, right,
1: yeah, stick my hand in this, and you know put it over here, so like, yeah, there's just something like that is really uh really cool connection through time, you know of of thinking like, oh man, people were doing the same thing, you know, putting their handprints on walls all this time ago, which is really cool, but the other really interesting thing, particularly in this context of animated movie, is there there's the you know theories about like what these different wall paintings were and why they were done the way they were. And, and they talk about, um, you know, if you if you actually carry a torch light, you know, like a, a flame through some of these, you know, passages that it almost like the way the light and the shadows move on the wall, it almost animates the characters, you know, oh, interesting, uh, which is kind of a, a cool idea too. Um, have you but, ever read Chesterton's The Everlasting Man? You know, it's on it's it's way up high on my current like to-read list, but I've never I've never actually read it.
0: Cuz he he talks about these Lascaux paintings and I wanted to I wanted to read what he says. Let me turn on my light so I can actually see it. Um so he's talking about people who are who are making these wild speculations about the people who made these paintings that uh, this was some sort of primitive religious ritual and you know, the caveman knocked women on the head and dragged them back to his, his cave. And, and Chesterton's really annoyed by this because, of course, it's all speculation. Um, and let's see, he says, uh, that, that moral is something much larger and simpler, so large and simple that when it is first stated, it will sound childish. And indeed, it is in the highest sense childish. And that is why I have in this apologue, in some sense, seen it through the eyes of a child. It is the biggest of all the facts really facing the boy in the cavern, and perhaps too big to be seen. If the boy was one of the flock of the priest, whom uh, I, think, I think these paintings were discovered by a boy and a priest who were, who were going through the caverns. It may be presumed that he had been trained in a certain quality of common sense, the common sense that often comes to us in the form of tradition. In that case, he would simply recognize the primitive man's work as the work of a man, interesting but in no way incredible in being primitive. He would see what was there to see, and he would not be tempted into seeing what was not there by any evolutionary excitement or fashionable speculation. If he had heard of such things, he would admit, of course, that the speculations might be true and were not incompatible with the facts that were true. The artist may have had another side of his character beside that which he has has alone left on record in his works of art. The primitive man may have taken a pleasure in beating women as well as in drawing animals. All we can say is that the drawings record the one but not the other. It may be true that when the caveman's finished jumping on his mother or his wife, as the case may be, he loves to hear the little brook a-gurgling and also watch the deer as they come down to drink at the brook. Those things are not impossible, but they are irrelevant. The common sense of the child could confine itself to learning from the facts what the facts have to teach. And the pictures in the cave are very nearly all the facts there are. So far as that evidence goes, the child would be justified in assuming that a man had represented animals with rock and red ochre for the same reason as he himself was in the habit of trying to represent animals with charcoal and red chalk. The man had drawn a stag just as the child had drawn a horse, because it was fun. The man had drawn a stag with his head turned, as the child had drawn a pig with its eyes shut, because it was difficult. The child and the man, both being human, would be united by the brotherhood of men, and the brotherhood of men is even nobler when it bridges the abyss of ages than when it bridges only the chasm of class. So I I think this movie got to some of that, because I, I I think you get the pleasures of leaving your handprint on that wall and it, it is part of a of religious ritual in this movie but it goes beyond that and also the wild pleasures of looking at it which you get um, you get when Kenai and Koda stumble across that wall two thirds of the way through the movie the, this, this kind mm-hmm. of amazement and wonder they feel in the face of this artistic achievement which is you know really pivotal yes absolutely pivotal the
1: transforming power of love, but also the transforming power of of art. <laughs> right, right. Yeah,
0: and the fact that they are these very um, complicated uh, drawings, looking at much simpler drawings. Although I, I really, if you you could just Google Lesko paintings and and look at them, and and they're primitive compared to Brother Bear. I agree with that, but they're really they're not as primitive as I would have expected them to be. They're, they really show a, a great artistic sense. And it's no it's no surprise that in the early 20th century those those paintings and other quote unquote primitive artworks are a big inspiration to the cubists and you know Picasso and Matisse and people like that. It, that doesn't surprise yeah. me at all because they they have the same sort of apparent simplicity as those, but actually they're 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 very um, uh, they're very sophisticated in in their way, much more sophisticated right. than you would expect from people drawing on caves. Let me put it that way.
1: Right, I think it was Picasso when he saw those paintings. Said, "We have invented nothing." Right, right, and there's some there's some real truth to that.
0: I I I would really if if our listeners don't know the Lascaux paintings, it's L A S C A O U X, Lascaux. I I would I would really you you can see almost all of them just by googling. Yeah. So I I really appreciated seeing that part because I had just taught that Chesterton passage in in my Western Civ class because I'm trying to teach them not to speculate too much about things we don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I, I appreciated seeing those those paintings.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought Chesterton into this because I've I've recently been been delving a little more into him and I I, I really like Chesterton so. That's cool. <clears throat> and I guess I should put in a plug for our our our, our non friend but wish he was a friend uh, Matthew Milliner. He's got a new book called uh, The Everlasting People. Where he kind of takes those ideas of the everlasting man and applies it to um, Native Inuit peoples in America. So, because um, I guess Chesterton never had a had a chance to do that himself, and so oh, Matthew Milner's kind of taken up that that task. And so he's got a series of lectures on YouTube you can watch about it, and then he's also got a book coming out. So
0: I know that you're a big uh, Milner fan.
1: That yeah, that ties it all together, you know. <laughs> chesterton and the the our, our inuit setting here and everything so. all right um so i got a couple things i don't like about this movie
0: <laughs> just a couple huh
1: <laughs> okay um, um but here's the biggest one every single character in this movie whether they're on the screen for like a second or like are the main character rolls their eyes at some point.
0: It's true. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I, I didn't even think about that.
1: <laughs> so many eye rolls in this movie. <laughs> I don't know if it's actually every single character, but it is a lot. But To be it's, fair, it's I rolled every, my eyes at this movie a lot. Everywhere. too. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what the deal with that was. Why? Why? <laughs> Number one. Like, I mean, I know an eye roll is kind of like a, you know, it's, it. people know what it means. You know, it's, it's something to pick up maybe it's fun to animate go back to the Chesterton quote maybe it's it's fun or difficult to animate but it's it's so prevalent everywhere in the movie I feel like they must have how could they not have noticed and said you know what maybe we have I don't know ten too many of these eye rolls. <laughs> maybe, maybe we should save it
0: <laughs> don't you think it's kind of part and parcel with uh, with Jim's rat tail and treasure planet like it's a very <laughs> 90s kind of disaffected um, <laughs> thing.
1: Yeah, I guess so. But it's like, the one that really got me is when the, the mammoths are rolling their eyes at Tota. At these mammoths things?
0: who don't even have personalities.
1: <laughs> I, the only personality that they have is it. Well, they do. I guess that their, their show of personality is, is they swoop up the, the little forest animals and let them ride too. Because why not? Um, everybody's along for the ride, and then they, they roll their eyes. I found like myself you.
0: wondering what's in it for the mammoths. <laughs> you know what I mean? To carry to carry moose on your back, that can't be an easy thing, no matter how big and woolly you are. Yeah. I, I, I thought it was interesting that they couldn't talk. I was interested in the animals that didn't talk. And I know why the salmon didn't talk, which is that we have to present bears as gentle creatures when in fact bears are are they're not carnivores they're omnivores but they're they're predator animals so the idea mm-hmm. that like. Oh, you know, they just want to live in the forest and get along with everybody. Well, n- <laughs> no, I mean they they eat other animals including the animals in this movie that have voices and personalities. And I, I mean this is something I've talked about ad nauseum with uh, animal movies and I know I know there's a suspension of disbelief involved. But here the the message is so clearly that these are the gentle gentle giants of the forest and it's just not true that salmon run where er- all are welcome here. Um, you know, in real life the the bears kill each other for positions in that river. It's not some sort of uh, burning man, which is uh, which is I, I think I think the inspiration for that scene. They all get together and talk about what's happened to them this year. you know, well, I mean, who knows what's going on in the mind of a bear? I don't want I don't want to speculate because obviously they, I think they have some sort of personality, but I, that that bothered me not so much that they I, I and what are you gonna do? you're gonna have um, you're gonna have can I get hungry and Maul – bob and doug and i i mean i i didn't want that (laughs) but like they 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 drove it home so much that these are gentle animals that you know they don't want to hurt anything and it's just like it's not true at all what did what did Kanai and coda eat on the way to the salmon run berries (laughs) they do eat berries it's true
1: (laughs) they eat berries come on michael don't, don't ruin the movie. i
0: I, I, I know <laughs> it's such a stupid complaint. i'm 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 sorry I know I do this every time there's an animal movie. I did I even did it with Robin Hood for crying out loud that made Marion would definitely have eaten Lady Cluck, but like it, it bothered me here because it was such a um such a central part of the movie, right. Yeah, cause canai and Coda have that whole conversation, you know, who are the killers here? Well, i'm I'm pretty sure bears kill animals I'm, I'm 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 fairly certain that at least every now and then a bear mauls something and eats it yeah i thought the movie would be great if the climax was uh denahi is attacking coda and kanai has to kill and eat him <laughs> <laughs> that's sick you're sick <laughs> And then he gets a taste for human flesh, and he, you know, oh. <laughs> from that point on, he's a man eater. Brother
1: Bear too, <laughs> the manslayer.
0: <laughs> Save it for the sequel.
1: There is kind of a uh, an undertone in that though, like of, and I, like humans are humans are the evil ones, you know, like humans are bad, that that you get in these movies, you know.
0: Yeah, who's between, the real virus, right?
1: Yeah. Like, who's the monster, you know? And so, I don't know. I think there is a... Gosh, I don't know how, how much I want to get into this, just because I haven't thought it all 100% through, and I don't want to stumble around forever. But, like, I I, I see their point.
0: Right, right. <laughs> well, I mean, and what Kanai does is indefensible is probably too strong a word but throw in the throwing the rock to pick the fight with the bear is at least stupid it's unnecessary it's not that he kills right. this bear even for food or certainly not to protect himself he right. kill he kills this bear just to kill it and and I mean that I, I think is that that's that's not a defensible thing to do I don't think
1: no yeah I'm in agreement although
0: well, I step on yeah. a lot of bugs so who am I to
1: – yeah but Dan- Danahi or whatever tells him that, you know, like killing a bear isn't going to make you a man. Right. It's not going to bring your brother back. He doesn't say that, you know, but that's the idea there. But then interestingly, Danahi goes down that same path, you know, when he loses Kanai, which I think is actually going back to this idea of love being like a form of, of need or a form of like being in community, you know, um, or love being a response to need rather, I guess. Like, that's what Danahi needs, is, you know, his community to come alongside him. And somebody needs to come tell him, like, hey, killing this bear, hunting this bear all the way across the world isn't going to solve anything. But he doesn't
0: have it, you know? Right. Well, yeah, because so, there's nobody left. Yeah. And they don't have so parents. Goes, Their parents are never even mentioned, are they?
1: No. So he goes further and further into this, like, isolation and, and cra- like, crazed... Uh, what revenge seeking? Um, while, you know, counter to that, uh, Kanai is being introduced into this whole everybody's welcome here. So I thought that was maybe not done super well in the movie, but was at least uh, you know, a positive aspect.
0: Yeah, I like that he grew a insubstantial mustache as he got crazier <laughs> and crazier. There's some really upsetting facial hair.
1: <laughs> yeah, he started looking more and more like the the Huns and uh, Mulan. That's true. Yeah, that's funny.
0: <laughs> You've been calling this an uh, era of near misses, which I think is right. But I don't think this one's as close a miss as most of these other ones. I t- I think this is a pretty bad movie that could have been a good movie. Like it's a miss. Like they, this could have been a hit, but I I think they I think they missed it by. By a mile. Mm.
1: This is a swing and a miss. Yeah,
0: I'm trying <laughs> to think. I mean, this is better than Dinosaur, which I, I mean, Dinosaur is just a deeply dreary movie. I don't mm-hmm. think it really even had very much promise, and it's it's probably better than. I, I, I keep going back to the sword and I need to rewatch the sword in the stone to see if I really hate it as much as I think I do. <laughs> but this is a, this is a, this is not a good movie. I don't, maybe I shouldn't go as far to say it's bad, but it's, it's sub mediocre. Right. Okay. So we're saying worse.
1: Are you saying we not as bad as dinosaur?
0: Yeah. Dinosaur is worse than this. Cause at okay. least the animation here is pretty good. Like dinosaur yeah. looks horrible in addition to not being very good story wise. <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> sorry to dump on dinosaur but i I don't disagree with you um worse than Atlantis and Treasure Planet though
0: yeah I think say. I think I would i i the, the experience of watching it was certainly worse now i I think if they had trusted the audience and not done the things we talked about at the very beginning of the show, I think it would have been better than Atlantis and Treasure Planet, but the movie as it stands, I do think is worse than Atlantis and Treasure Planet and probably worse than Tarzan, yeah.
1: So, Tad Murphy, Tab Murphy is the screenwriter on several Disney movies, and basically what you're telling me is uh, he, he had a, a downhill career because he did Hunchback, and then he did Tarzan, which I think Tarzan's worse than Hunchback, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and then he did Atlantis, which is worse than Tarzan.
0: <laughs> the script of Atlantis is probably better than the script of Tarzan, though.
1: I think the things <laughs> that, that
0: made Atlantis bad... It had less to do with the screenplay.
1: Yeah. And then he did Brother Bear. so,
0: And that was his last Disney then, movie, as I see. He wrote, yeah. Be Cool Scooby-Doo.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, Which, for all I, I know, care. is
0: the best Scooby-Doo property ever. Hey, it could be. I'll probably never before. find out. You
1: know what I mean? Well, Michael, I was just about to pitch to you. What if we do all Scooby-Doo-related... We'll just do every every
0: Hanna Barbera <laughs> <Every> property. Single...
1: <laughs> well, that would take forever, I mean we would we we would have to do every every week instead of every month. And I still don't know if we'd make it in our lifetime.
0: <clears throat> you could just do all but the I Huckleberry think we could do Hound it. episodes. <laughs> the you know the problem with all those Hanna Barbera properties is every single episode is exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess that's that trip, like the Jetsons and the Flintstones. They have actual plots, but like every Huckleberry Hound episode is the same. Every Yogi Bear episode is definitely the same. Yeah. And they're fun, but I mean, Wacky Races is the best. Or we could do every Wacky Races episode. We could do that in a, oh, on, yeah. in like two years. Yeah, let's do of course that. it's always the same too. Dick Dastardly cheats to get, <laughs> get ahead, and then it backfires on him, and Muttley laughs at him. <laughs> 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 that's how bad brother bear is that we have switched to talking about (laughs) wacky races yeah all right well what else do you have to say about this (laughs) uh you know um yeah I, i i don't know that i have anything else to say about it it uh, D.B. Sweeney, who played the dinosaur in Dinosaur, is the older brother here. So, oh, really? He's Sitka? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Oh, you know, we haven't talked about Tanana at all, the the shaman, the the, the female mm-hmm. shaman. I, I thought that was a pretty good performance. Played by what did Joan like Copeland, who is uh, Arthur Miller's sister, which is crazy. It's crazy to think about that. Arthur Miller, who wrote Death of a Salesman. isn't that
1: weird weird. i
0: thought thought it was a good performance i thought i thought she um it it could have been more stereotypical than it was and i i I thought she imbued that role with a lot of uh, a lot of humanity Hmm. what did you think yeah yeah i i I don't disagree
1: i think uh yeah i guess i didn't really think about her because oh well i think She's on the she's she's in the movie for the right amount of time. Yeah, you know, agreed. You don't get tired of her. Agreed. She doesn't she doesn't have the uh, rut and tuk problem.
0: Much less uh, much less successful is the narration from Denahi's point of view. I I thought that was a, a really horrible performance, wooden and. Yeah. Well, it's kind of weird.
1: Well, it's, it's wooden because it's, here's the theme of the movie. <laughs> you know, it's, it gets back to your. Let me tell you uh, the story
0: about a boy who yes. wanted to become a man. <laughs> yeah. So what else is he going to do? Yeah.
1: I thought the, uh, the, I forget the name of the language. I'm sorry that they used, um, was kind of weird because this isn't an actual native American tale. This is just
0: they just you know, made it like up. It's,
1: yeah, they just made and it. It seems up. like there it are, could be an
0: Inuit movie or an Inuit right. story.
1: Yeah, I guess there are tales of people turning into animals in order to learn a lesson. So, like, the, it's not one hundred percent uninspired by that. But, like, yeah, they went through a lot of different iterations of what they wanted this movie to be. Um And so then to come in and have so they they got a you know, some professor of, of lingu- linguists or whatever. Um, He's an
0: anthropologist, an Inuit anthropologist, or you pick okay. this says. I, I, I don't, I, I, I will admit, I don't know much about Northwestern indigenous culture. Yeah,
1: but basically they wrote they wrote him <laughs> <laughs> what they wanted him to say, and then he just translated it and recorded it, you know? So it's like, I don't know. I mean, you know, you're a translator now like translation doesn't really work like that either like like if you were going to say it in you you wouldn't say it the way you say it in english you know so i don't know that all just seems really strange to me like why even do that
0: yeah I, i i don't know especially since that that's the only actually indigenous voice in the whole movie right everybody else is a I was gonna say everybody else is a white person, which is not true because Michael Clark Duncan and Jeremy Suarez are both black but um it's it's not um this is this is not a movie that un, unlike Pocahontas, it's not a movie that sought out any kind of Native American voice actors. I don't know how many Inuit voice actors there are, to be fair, but um so maybe maybe they just wanted an actual Inuit voice in the movie which i can I can respect, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I, well, uh, I feel like our episodes <laughs> on the movies we don't like are always shorter, and maybe that's disappointing because I, I always enjoy reading somebody or listening to somebody dump on something. But I, <laughs> I always just feel exhausted by the uh, by the negativity of, of just putting these movies down. So right. we never and go for an hour and 45 minutes when we don't like a movie.
1: Yeah. Which I'm okay with. I don't want to. Be, I don't want to be a dumper on person. And I'd like to highlight the, you know, the things that we do like, which I think we did. But there just isn't. There just wasn't as much to to highlight, unfortunately. How
0: would you feel about Coda? Were you? Uh, I didn't hate him. Was he too? Okay. I didn't hate him. I, I was, was prepared to. I think I hated Bob and Doug so much that. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> okay. I, I think okay. I exa- exhausted my. My hatred on them, and so I thought I was going to dislike him, but he, he ended up being a, a better character and a better performance than I was afraid he was going to be, Yeah, played by Jeremy Suarez, who I guess was in the um, Bernie Mac show. Yeah, I don't know anything about I
1: His voice sounded familiar to me, but I, when I looked at his uh, you know, accomplishments, I, I don't know what I would have recognized his voice from. I've never seen the Bernie Mac show. Me neither. All right. Well, Michael, what are we doing next month? <laughs> Home on the Range. Home on the Range. Another uh, North American set
0: movie, huh? Yeah, I, I guess it's... Uh, With animals? It's like a Wild West movie, but it's all animals. I guess. I don't know. I, I really don't know anything about it except that Katie Lang sings one of the songs. All right. So, And, and that it's the last... It was the last... Uh,
1: the last traditionally animated Disney film. Yeah,
0: before they shut down the program. So I guess we'll find out next next month whether it's uh, whether it's any good or not.
1: Yeah, I guess so. Oh man, I am <laughs> not optimistic. Yeah, I mean it. But maybe we'll be surprised. There's always that chance. All right. Well, please join us then. Um, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. We're on the old interwebs at beforetheywere.live and christianhumanist.org. Please help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us at beforetheywerelive at gmail.com. We also want to encourage you to set your podcast player's dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. Michael and I know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for spending the time with us. So for Michael Farmer, I'm Josh altman reminding you that if the snow's white, then it's all right. Yellow or green, it's just not clean.